Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. verse 4 it says this one thing I ask of the Lord this is what I seek you just imagine for a moment that you were sitting face to face with Jesus now he's not a genie in a bottle let's not treat him that way but if you had the opportunity to ask for one thing what might that be I think the psalmist who wrote this text had considered this deeply. And I think it's worth you taking time this year, maybe even in the first couple weeks of 2024, to consider, if I could ask one thing, what would that be? Here's what the psalmist writes. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now in that context, a few thousand years ago, the psalmist was thinking of the temple. That was the only place on earth where God's known presence resided. Today, on this side of the cross, you and I have become the temple of God's Spirit. He lives in us. We live within Him. So echoing that same prayer today doesn't mean, well, I'd like to just live in a church building for the rest of my life, or I want to go to a site in Jerusalem where a temple existed 2,000 years ago. No, I think it means I want to be very aware of my walk with Jesus. I don't want to just sense him on Sunday or maybe when I'm in a small group during the week. Just a closer walk with thee. That's what I long for, to know him. And I think as we begin this year, the prayer that matters most that I pray for you is that your walk with Jesus would be meaningful and growing all throughout this year. Could we pray together? Father, I want to pray for each person gathered with us in this room right now, those who are watching on a screen somewhere else. You listen to the cries of our heart. You listen to the deepest desires. Many of us have other things calling for our attention, pains, problems, challenge, concern. I think even within those, there's a cry for us to know your presence in the midst of all things guide our thinking this week. Guide our thinking as we move into these beginning days and weeks of this year so that our lives would be reordered around this one priority of knowing you more, of growing in meaningful relationship with you this year. I ask Holy Spirit that you would be speaking to our hearts. What's one thing that we can do this week, this month, this year, to increase our enjoyment of you. Populate our thinking, our thoughts, with what you're calling us to. We thank you that you will do this. In Jesus' name we pray together. And everyone said, amen. Why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 4, and let's prepare our hearts for the Um, Anybody agree that us humans are fairly funny things? 
Um, and I think New Year's helps point that out. We all handle our lives very differently, but there are some things that we handle in common, or most hum humans do, especially around the turning of a new year. Um, I saw this graph recently. I thought it was very insightful to what we are like as people. Um, somebody went online and did a study of uh, how often humans search the word cheese online. And you can see that in December, it spikes like crazy and then plummets in January. And they contrast that against searches for the word kale, <laughs> which is quite low through most of the year. It gets a little bit of pickup in the fall, probably because of soups. And then uh, nobody's thinking about kale in December at all. And what are we searching in January? Kale. Uh, yeah. So. That's us. I don't know if you've seen the comic, uh, and it's now a show as well, an animated show called Strange Planet. They do a great job of just uh, musing over how wonderfully bizarre we are as people. But here's a couple creatures. I don't know if you can read what they're saying, but beginning in the top left corner. I am going to become a better being. When? In a few days. Okay. On the day we traditionally become better beings? Yes. Until then, I will mildly debase myself. Ah, to maximize contrast? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and they're speaking, of course, of New Year's Day. We as humans rotate around our star, which we call the sun. Uh, it takes 365 days to completely you know, get our rotation done. But once we've done that 365th time, and we've now made one rotation around our star, Many of us feel like, naha, now it's time to look for kale, uh, or whatever it may be in our lives. There is something, and maybe you've heard of this, called the fresh start effect. Behavioral scientists have discovered this as they study us humans and have found uh, credible scientific data that suggests as we encounter anything new, many humans or most humans find fresh inspiration or fresh motivation from just the simple fact that something is new, be it a new day, a new week, or a new year. How many of us think, oh, I'm not going to get to that today, but tomorrow I will, right? And why do we think tomorrow? Well, there's going to be fresh, there's a fresh start somehow associated, or, you know, not this week, but next week I begin whatever it is, or next year. The fresh start effect, I think, seems quite real. The series that we're going to be in for the next few weeks is called Healthy, Wealthy, and Wealthy is spelled in a different way, by the way. Uh, we are not pivoting towards prosperity gospel. We happen to believe that the gospel of Jesus has all the richness of faith and hope and love we could ever long for. But our series is called Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. And as a church family, we embrace a value which we call holiness and that's spelt with a W at the beginning. This idea that your well-being, your wholeness, matters deeply to God. And our, our church family health and well-being matters deeply to God and to one another. And so for the next few weeks, as we have a fresh start together, moving into 2024 as a church family, uh, we're going to consider some of the things that collide when we consider Jesus, a life of flourishing, and the year in front of us, healthy, wealthy, and wise. So you've turned to the book of Mark, chapter 4, 
And uh, just by way of a reminder, a few years ago, we did a series through the summer in the book of Mark. The first eight chapters, or sort of into the eighth chapter of the book of Mark, makes the first of three parts or movements in Mark's writing. In many ways, there's a reflection or an echo of the story of the Exodus built into Mark. And we're going to find ourselves at the end of chapter 4 and take a look as well at chapter 5 today. And so we find ourselves in part 1 of Mark, which is all about the mighty acts of Yahweh. Now, some of you might say, what's a Yahweh or who's Yahweh? Yahweh was the ancient Israelite name for God. That's who they understood him to be. What's so wonderful and mesmerizing about Jesus is that as he started doing what he would do and saying what he would say, people around him began realizing this isn't just a man. This is Yahweh among us. Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. He is God. He is Yahweh among us. So the first eight chapters of Mark are filled with all kinds of punchy stories of these miraculous things that only God could do. Let's begin in verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side and he's speaking about a body of water. Leaving the crowd behind, he, uh, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. Just a side note, have you ever been in a storm of life and you wonder where is God in the midst of it? It kind of feels like he's asleep somewhere. Um, Jesus does contain the kind of peace that could cause him to sleep in the midst of a storm. That's the same kind of peace we need to actually access and find in him in the midst of our own storms. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Can you imagine what that would have been like if you were one of the disciples in the boat? He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Translation, it's like he's saying, are you, are you still afraid? Why won't you trust me? 41, verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, you have to remember that as we approach scripture, most of us approach scripture knowing a lot of the whole stories, we're like, come on, guys, wake up. This is Jesus. It's obvious. He's God. But in their story, I mean, nobody ever imagined or fathomed that God, Yahweh, would live amongst people as a person. And so when they ask this question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're realizing something significant, something very profound. When this man talks, creation listens. The only being we know of who can do that is Yahweh. Now, what's interesting is it seems that Mark, who's writing this gospel, he's echoing the preaching and the words of the apostle Peter. He's under the Spirit's inspiration. He's linking together this story with the next two stories that follow in chapter five. We won't read those stories today, but the first story is about a demon-possessed man who's very, very troubled. And Jesus 
crosses a body of water with his disciples, arrives at the shore, and has an encounter with this man. And the man is completely set free after Jesus says these words to the dark, evil presence in the man. Come out of this man. And what happens? He's completely set free. It shocks the disciples as they watch it happen. It it shocks the villagers surrounding the area. They're quite bewildered by it. They're, They're thrown off by it. They don't know what to do with it. What they observe is, here is a human who appears to have authority, speaking authority over unseen realms. We've never seen anything like this. What's going on? With his words, here we find Jesus speaking with authority over creation, and it listens. Jesus speaking with authority into unseen realms. Dark spirits obey him. Only Yahweh has that kind of authority. The the story that follows concludes with a sick little girl who dies. And Jesus and a few of his disciples are near her. And Jesus utters these words, little girl, I say to you, get up. How do you imagine Jesus saying that? All of us sort of have our own inner voice for how we see or imagine the sound of his voice in that moment. Probably not a lot of us are thinking, I think he stood there over her and just started shouting at this little girl's corpse. No, I think there's a gentleness that it's safe for us to imagine here, even by her, her being called little girl by Jesus. We were, you know, we're privy to observe this tenderness of his heart as he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. So he's probably not yelling. He's just speaking in a gentle voice. It's interesting how we use our tone of voice to try to get things to happen. But only Yahweh could kind of just subtly say something like this, and it actually results in a dead person becoming alive. And gently and sweetly, Jesus speaks to her body, and what happens? Life returns. She's raised from the dead. Imagine again what it's like for the disciples. Imagine you're one of the first hearers of the Gospel of Mark being read, and you're reminded of these three stories in Jesus' ministry and walk on earth. First, he speaks and he has a command over creation. Secondly, he speaks and he seems to have a command over the unseen realm. Thirdly, he speaks and now he has a command over death itself. Who alone can do this but Yahweh? This is God. What's going on in these three stories? God's word matters. When God speaks, things happen. Mark is wanting us to see this. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, these stories are strung together to help you and I catch the echoes of importance about how profound and how powerful God's Word is. Listen to this interesting quote from Gandhi. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces. Uh, You know, that's maybe a negative way of looking at Christianity. Hopefully, we no longer will be guilty of those kind of attempts. But he's talking about some kind of power that we have connected to the Word of God. And then he says this. You have uh, this document to do that. It it can also turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece 
of literature. Thanks for that, Gandhi. <laughs> uh, maybe he has a point for us to consider here. Are there times that you and I find ourselves a little guilty of underestimating the reality and the importance of God's word to our lives and to our world? Uh, I read through some of a very, very interesting study put together by two people named Arnold Cole and Pamela Caudill Ovigo. And it was called the uh, Understanding the Bible Engagement Challenge, Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. And uh, these, two, uh, these two people studied 80,000 people with varying levels of interaction with the Bible. So within that 80,000, you know, the group of 80,000 people, there were many who had zero engagement with the Bible. Uh, all the way up to a portion of the 80,000 had daily interaction with the Bible and everything in between. One day a week, two days a week, three days a week, four times, you know, five, six, seven. And so they just studied. They had all kinds of questions and considerations over a period of time that they put in front of these 80,000 people. Um, and they found something very, very fascinating, and they've sort of suggested we should think of the power of four when we think of the Word of God. Here's what they discovered. If you interact with God's Word, one, let's go back a slide. If we, you interact with the Word of God once a week, twice a week, or three times a week, uh, there's basically the same effect in your personal life as those who do not engage with the Bible at all. Isn't that interesting? Let me just say that again so that it's very clear. If you engage with the Bible one, two, or three times a week, its impact on your personal life is virtually the same as for those who have zero interaction ever with the Word of God. Fascinating. They were, they were stunned by this result. But what they found was as soon as somebody was interacting with the Bible four days a week, there were massive and significant changes that occurred in that category of people and upward, four, five, six, seven days a week. Very fascinating. Here were some of the things that they began noticing as soon as somebody was reading the Bible four times a week. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. Discipling others jumps 230%. Four interactions with the Word of God a week or more. Significant results. Less than four, insignificant results or impact. Just for the parents and the grandparents in the room, one of the sobering things that came out of this study as well is that the number one indicator or predictor of a child or teenager having faith of their own in their young adult and adult years was that between the ages of 13 and 17, they engaged with the Bible four times a week or more. Number one indicator. I think that's a prayer priority for us this year. 
We gave away nearly 50 Bibles over Christmas Eve. Fantastic. We want to continue to populate our children and our teens with the Word of God, but also a hunger for His Word. And we can't manufacture it. That's something God alone can do, but we can pray. Amen? I want you to think with me today about the value and importance of your Bible. If you have a physical Bible today, would you just hold it up right now? Why don't you give it a little hug? I'm going to see you at least four times this week. You can give a little kiss to me. Love you. Now, let's just be clear. Jesus, at one point, speaks to a bunch of religious leaders, and he says, you guys think that by the scriptures you have eternal life, and you fail to come to me. And he's making an important point. Don't become religious about this, because it leads to someone, to Jesus, and that's what this is all about. The experts in the law were experts in the law, not experts in Jesus. That was the problem. And you and I are not called to become experts in the Bible, but to have living encounters regularly with Jesus through his word. In fact, it's very hard to have ongoing living encounters and relationship with Jesus apart from his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says this, people do not live on bread alone. And everybody who's avoiding gluten in January said amen. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God, it's interesting because, you know, our own personal science would feel like it defies that. Like, well, uh, if I cut out food, I will die. Right. If you cut out the word of God, you will do much more than physically die. True? People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I want you to think again about how our story begins. God speaking into the nothingness of existence, things like this. Let there be light. He created not with raw materials, but with his word. Wow. And then Jesus comes along, and he's the word made flesh. He's walking among us, and he's healing people with what? His words. He's setting people free with what? His words. He's forgiving people with what? His words. He's raising people from the dead with what? His living words that have an authority over death and have the authority to bring life. It's no wonder the centurion who encountered Jesus said, Jesus, just say the word. Just speak something to me and there will be life. Revelation chapter 1 I remind most of us who have been part of this journey back through the midpoint of last year, in chapter 1, the second week of the Revelation series, we looked at this two-verse description of Jesus, and some of us remember what a chiasm is. There's sort of these corresponding reflections between beginning and end, and beginning and end that leads to a center focal point. Here's how it reads. Description or describing Jesus, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And now we come to the focal point of the revelation of Jesus in chapter one. His voice is the focal point. His voice is at the center of where our attention is being drawn to in that text. It was like the sound of rushing waters. 
And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Hebrews chapter 4 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any sword. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say, All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 119 says this, God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Some of you have significant decisions to be made this week, this month, or this year. God's word is the single greatest thing that will help illuminate steps forward for you. Luke chapter 7, it says this, all the people, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. In John chapter 6, it says, Jesus speaking, the words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. In Psalm 119, the psalmist is delighting in God's word and says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it's a little bit convenient for us to think about this passage because of the day and age we live in. We're like, well, yeah, honey, honey is wonderful, isn't it? And we can just go to any grocery store we want to, walk down an aisle, and for not too much money, walk, you know, go home with some honey. In the ancient world, honey was a, an even more precious commodity. It, the average person did not get honey as simply as we do. Some brave soul with a long enough stick... I should study, in the, I haven't looked it up, but I'd like to find out what the ancient techniques were for getting honey. But somebody got stung a lot, and they figured, I should get paid pretty well for this, and so honey was not very accessible and very cheap. The, friends, the word of, that's so important for us to capture about this. His word, the Bible, is sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Friends, the word of God, the Bible, is precious. And gathering revelation of Jesus is worth every effort it takes to get. Just ask the guy from 3,000 years ago who was trying to get honey without getting stung. Before I move into four practical things that I hope will be helpful to you, I want us just to pause for 30 seconds right now. I want you to reflect, and I want you to listen to the Spirit speaking to your heart today. Here's the question. What's one hope you have for your Bible reading this year? What's one hope you have for your Bible reading this year? Let's just take 30 seconds right now and reflect on that. What's one hope you have for your Bible reading this year? Uh, if you have a notepad in front of you, there's probably a clear thought that's come to your mind or maybe it's beginning to form. Jot it down quickly. I hesitate to ask you to grab your phones and put it in a note. If you think you can safely do that without seeing all the notifications and then being totally off track and lost, then go ahead and write down a note as well. But capture that thought. What is one thing you hope for in your relationship with God through his word this year? Let me, um, 
Let me treat the next few moments as if you and I were visiting and having a conversation perhaps in my office and you were asking me, I would like to read the Bible more and, and, and kind of get more out of it as I do. What do I need to do or what will help me with that? I have four things I want to share with you right now that I believe can be helpful to you as you read scripture this year. Number one, give the best time of your day to the Bible. Give the best time of your day, number one, to the Bible. I've tried reading the Bible at various different times in the day, sometimes much less successfully than others. Um, have you ever had a good nap and woken up in the Bible somewhere nearby and realized, oh, that's how I fell asleep? Um, that was the, it's, doesn't mean it was boring. It means it was the wrong time of day. <laughs> um, hopefully you know yourself well enough by now to know what is the time of day that my mind feels freshest, that I feel sharpest, that I feel alert, that if I had to have like a really important meeting or phone call, I would schedule it for that time. Definitely not that time. Definitely not that time. That time is prime time for the word of God. Make sure as well that that time, whatever it is, can be unrushed and undisturbed. Parents, lock yourselves in the bathroom if you have to. And I'm kind of being serious. Like you've got to hide out. I have a hideout in my house. Now, the kids know where it is, and they find me in it. But it's not very convenient for them to get there. Find times that are unrushed, undisturbed, that you can protect. Secondly, treat reading the Bible like a meal. How many of you plan to eat today? Not many. I'm surprised. It is January, I guess. After all, everybody's like, oh, I'm fasting. Ugh. How many of you plan to eat today? Yes, wonderful. You've made a plan to do that, haven't you? Um, I want to encourage you, as your pastor, have a Bible reading plan. Very few of us um, get into the most important things of life accidentally, several times a week. We make plans. Now, I, I want to balance that thought with something else. Make, make a Bible reading plan. But secondly, be gracious with yourself. There are high ambitions that come with the fresh start effect of the new year. And some people, every new year, they're like, this year I'm going through the whole, this is the year I'm going through the whole Bible. And so we're in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. I mean, we get all the 11, that's good. And 12, that's good. And 13, and 14, okay, 15, 16. And then all of a sudden, we get into the list of genealogies. And then if you made it into Exodus, the first part, cool, great story. And by halfway through Exodus, we're lost. And we're like, ugh. And if you made it to Levit Leviticus, give yourself a hand. Um, some people, the moment that they give up or they fail, it feels fatal to them in their Bible reading plans. Have a plan, but be gracious with yourself. If you falter, if you fail, just get up and keep going. Now, the other way that you've got to be gracious with yourself in Bible reading is, again, by treating it like a meal. Um, healthy rule of thumb, eat until you're full. Um, for, for the first many years of my Bible reading plan, I was very sort of locked into a rigid chapter-by-chapter -chapter way of reading 
And I had a goal, whether it was one chapter or two or three a day or whatever it was, that those were the, you know, I'll start at the beginning of this chapter and I'll finish at the end of the chapter. And that's not a bad thing to do, except there were times that I would, something in the middle of a chapter would actually really pique my interest and I kind of wanted to dig into it, but I'm like, uh, I gotta make it to the end. And so I get to the end and then I look at the time, oh, I gotta move along here, whatever it might be. Sure, follow a plan, whether it's chapter by chapter, whatever it may be. But the moment you find something that piques your interest and your curiosity, stay there. Follow the stream of life. What I've discovered is I might start, let's say I'm in a chapter in Matthew somewhere, and all of a sudden in this story of Jesus, there's a quotation that maybe in the references it says this is from Isaiah, and I think, well, oh, that's from Isaiah. I wonder what that actually looks like over in Isaiah. And then I look at it in Isaiah, I'm like, well, that's really interesting. And look at the verses in front of that and behind that. And hmm, that brings to mind this. There have been times that I follow the stream of life and now I'm in Isaiah and that, well, now I gotta go to Genesis to see something about this. And now that I'm in Genesis, that triggers something about how this all ends. So now I'm in Revelation. And this might last for a few days or a few weeks in my Bible reading where I'll pick up and I'm like, I know I'm kind of in Matthew, but it's brought me through Isaiah and Genesis. Now I'm in Revelation for a little bit. And it's all still connected to that original thing in Matthew. And once I end and find the end of that stream of life for that thought, I roll all the way back. Now I'm in Matthew and I go to the next section in there. Treat it like a meal. When it's good, go for seconds and keep going. When you're full, stop. If you haven't reached the end of the chapter, that's okay. You're full for the day. But you'll be hungry tomorrow. Pick up and keep going. Treat reading the Bible like a meal. Is that helpful? Third, zoom out, then zoom in. Zoom out, then zoom in. I'm using sort of digital terminology here. You know, sort of scroll back, if you will, or, or step back and look at the big picture and then go into what you're reading. To be very honest, for me, most of the time when I'm reading scripture, I have to, for even just 30 seconds at the beginning, kind of remind myself of the big picture before I begin reading, especially if I'm in the Old Testament. You know, when I'm in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's fairly clear and easy to follow. But when I'm, you know, Somewhere else, I'm in, I was in Nehemiah recently. I'm like, right, I just have to see the big picture again. Now, one of the things we've utilized in our church family is something we call the story of God and five trees. Let me just bring that to your mind again. You've seen these symbols before. For some of us, this is an introduction. You can refer back to some of our previous messages or resources to understand this better. But essentially, there are five significant trees that appear in Scripture. And when we understand the story and the flow connected to these trees, it helps us to understand where we're reading in Scripture, any book in the Bible. The first two trees appear in the first few chapters of Genesis, the tree of life and then the tree of freedom. God offering this possibility to humanity through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to either choose him or choose their own way. But he warns them, your independence will bring corruption to you and to our world. And what do they choose? That. Does God abandon us? No. We find in Genesis 12 and onward, he wants to bring a redemptive plan to the world through a relationship, a covenant relationship with a family that would become a nation that would fill the world. And that's Abraham. At the tree of Mamre, there's a connection that occurs and what do we see through this? We call this the tree of faithfulness. Over and over and over again, through the Old Testament, God's people 
They kind of give it a good shot and then they fail again. And what does God do? That's it, I'm done with you? No, he remains faithful to them. Yes, they have to bear the consequences of their choices over and over again. Sometimes it's exile, sometimes it's attack. It's difficult for them. But does God give up? No, he remains faithful. And there are times you're reading in the Old Testament, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Remind yourself, look at how faithful God is to his people in spite of how messed up we can make things. And things change at Jesus. That fourth tree is the tree of forgiveness. And then in Revelation, we see the first tree reappear. It's signifying that God, through his, the resurrection of Jesus, has begun a new movement of making all things new. It's a tree of renewal. When you're reading in Scripture, just try to think where you are in relative uh, relationship to those trees, and that will help you. Now, here is something I'm happy to guarantee as you Bible read. You are always going to bump into questions and problems along the way. Always. You, you don't sort of graduate to a certain level of Christianity or maturity and faith where you're like, now when I read the Bible, I don't have any more questions. The closer you get to an impressive tree, the greater the opportunity there is to bump into one of its roots. You will have a lifelong relationship with questions and problems that occur as you spend time in the Bible. Don't let them trip you up. Keep moving closer to the heart of the matter, which is Jesus. I, I want to just say this. It changes. The kind of questions you, and problems you face in Scripture change over time. When I started out as a teenager reading the Bible very regularly, every day during the week, the problems that I faced with Scripture were a little different than the ones that I do now. Back then, I remember one time in my student NIV Bible, I found a grammatical error, punctuation problem, that the editors hadn't found. And I was like, ah, the Bible has a, an error. I thought this was supposed to be the infallible Word of God. And then it triggered another question. Does my Bible have page 666? And I cautiously, slowly, and nervously flipped into the 600s, to the 650s, into the 660s, and there I found page 666 in my Bible. I had to read it. Could I trust it? It was the problem that I found as a teenager with Scripture. Now, I have no problems with seeing that. Um, I have no problems with the grammatical or punctual... Uh, punctuation type of error in my Bible. But the questions I bump into now are far deeper than that. And probably this year, bless you, much like something was dropped there and it becomes a problem, don't let it trip you up. You're going to find questions and difficulties and challenges. Keep engaging the heart of God through his word. Fourth, and I'd say this is perhaps most important as you engage God's word this year. Take a picture of Jesus every time. Take a picture of Jesus every time. This is the fourth thought for you. I, I want to just share with you uh, my journey with Bible reading just a little bit further. Uh, you know, I was raised in a great Christian home. I'm grateful for my upbringing. I went to all kinds of Sunday school classes and midweek children discipleship courses and things like that. And Somehow, as I interpreted how we're to read the Bible, I kind of thought as the youngster, I'm reading this Bible for information. I've got to know who the kings of Israel were. 
I've got to know when Israel and Judah split. I've got to know who the 12 disciples were. I've got to know which books in the New Testament have the red letters of Jesus in it. I've got to know how many books in the Bible there are. Information, information, information. Because what if there's a quiz when I get to heaven? Maybe I can get some stars or some badges or something for all the information I know. But information isn't the pursuit of Scripture. You know, that's not its intent for us. Is there information in it? Absolutely. But is that the chief pursuit? No. And I realized, I think in some of my first years of Bible college, this is exhausting, trying to read for information all the time. There must be a better way. And... My focus changed from reading for information to reading for transformation. I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to journal, and I'm going to ask my Bible every day, what do I need to do differently? How do I need to change? Maybe you have approached Scripture like that. Maybe you do right now. And I carried that approach to Scripture for quite a while. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I realized after a while it's exhausting, it's secondary, most concerning, it makes me the main character of the Bible. Reading scripture for transformation puts me sort of at the center saying, okay, since this is all about me and it needs to change me and doing this and that and the other to me, I have to consistently read scripture through the lens of me. And that's a bit discouraging. And so some years later, I realized there is a much greater pursuit in scripture than information and transformation. It's what we call revelation, beholding the heart of God in Scripture. And what I've discovered through the years is as that continues to be my central pursuit in Scripture, to behold the heart of God, transformation begins happening as a natural byproduct of that. And if you want information too, it comes in the package as well. But those two periphery things shouldn't be at the center. What's at the middle is the revelation of God's heart. Now, some of you might be like, well, what does this have to do with take a picture of Jesus every time? Can I just, this is how I view scripture, and I would invite you to consider the same. We read from Mark a little earlier, Matthew, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, this sort of stretch here. This, these are the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for some people, when they read the Bible, they're like, oh, this is the part that's about Jesus. And then this is sort of about the church and their problems. And then this is the Old Testament. It's not that. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, the whole Old Testament, I want you to imagine it as if it's an, a giant arrow or 39 arrows, all pointing to Jesus. And then in the Gospels, we see Jesus quite clearly. And in the book of Acts, we're told this is Jesus now at work through his church. And then the letters are about the ongoing work of Jesus in his church. And Revelation concludes with what Jesus is doing right now and what he'll do ultimately in the end, which is a new beginning. It's all about Jesus. And friends, I'm with you. I understand that, especially in the Old Testament, there are some things that are quite confusing about God. And we're like, was he having a bad few millennia? Was he having a hard, hard time? Why does he appear so different? You and I need to learn to embrace God as he's revealed through scripture, through the lens of Jesus. Here's how I look at it. Some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, 
I remember a set of mountains that I grew up being able to see from my home where I grew up in the lower mainland, the Golden Ears Peaks Alouette area. And once, you know, 16 years later, I've got a car, I can drive where I want. I was visiting a friend and I had to drive through Coquitlam to get to his place. And while I was coming across the Portman Bridge, coming back towards where we lived in Langley, I thought, oh, beautiful mountain range. I've never seen those mountains over there. That's strange, beautiful. And I kept driving and every once in a while I'd glance back to those mountains and I'd be like, oh, seen those I've never seen those and the closer I got to Langley the more they started reminding me of the Golden Ears Mountains but I'm like that they can't be and once I got to Langley I realized they are the Golden Ears Mountains I've just never seen them from that angle before and one of the things we realize in scripture is that this is a journey of the people of God around the mountain of God and in the Old Testament we're like well this is all we see so this is what we think he must be like but the picture of God comes into clearest focus when Jesus walks this earth and so we must understand that this is the clearest understanding for humanity of what God is truly like. Listen to Hebrews 1.3. It says this, The Son, Jesus, is the exact radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.5 says of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, and Colossians, sorry, that shouldn't say Colossians 1.15. I think that's in John chapter 6. I apologize for that mistake. Jesus said, when somebody believes in me, they do not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When they look at me, they see the one who sent me. When you're reading in scripture, yes, even in the Old Testament, I had to do it when I was in Nehemiah. Okay, how does this point towards Jesus? Oh, I had to look at the bigger picture, remember that? And then and what does this tell me about the heart of God? How does this point my heart towards Jesus? In John chapter 6, um, Jesus speaks a, a very difficult message. Uh, and crowds leave him. And then he turns to his disciples and says, would you guys like to leave too? I'm paraphrasing, but you know the heart of this story. And Peter speaks up for the group of disciples. He's just seen everybody leave and he says... Where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. What's the translation of what Peter's saying there? It's as if he's saying this, Jesus, listen, me and these 11 other guys, we're just as confused as everybody who left. But what we know is this, when we're with you and when you talk, we feel alive, so we're not leaving. What did he say that was so confusing? Eat my body. that application for us to share in communion together. I want to ask you as you reflect upon your engagement with God's word this year to allow a decision to be made in your heart today about what, what you're aiming towards this year in your Bible reading and engagement. Laura's going to lead us in a song as the communion servers now come forward and begin handing out the elements and then we're going to conclude our time together in celebrating communion.
Christmas, we celebrate and remember that the Word was made flesh. That God, the same God who spoke all existence into being, came to live and walk amongst us. To make himself known and as relatable as possible in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we looked at even earlier, went to a tree himself, to the cross, to bear the full weight of our sin, which we desperately need. We thank you for this now. Amen. Let's take the bread together. Scripture says in the same way, the same night Jesus took the cup, it said this cup represents a new covenant, a new agreement between people and God. The contents of the cup wine, the juice, represents both the death of God and his life, which is supplied for you and I, life abundant and life everlasting. Jesus, thank you for not resisting death, but embracing suffering, shedding your blood for our healing and for a real hope for new life, renewed life. I pray that that kind of life would come to our existence, our walks, this year in fresh ways through your word. In Jesus' name, let's take the cup together with thanksgiving. When you've taken the cup, let's stand together. Lord's going to lead us in a chorus as we conclude. I would love to pray over you today and specifically just a prayer over your engagement with God's word, with your Bible reading this year. And as I pray, I'm going to call forward anybody who's helping with our prayer ministry team today to make yourselves available. Perhaps as we conclude today, when we dismiss, if there's a need in your life that you want somebody to pray with you about, we would be our honor, really, to come alongside and pray with you and pray for you. So as we conclude, please come forward, and we'd be glad to pray with you today. Let's pray now as a group. Father, I pray over each person gathered here today, those watching online. We acknowledge that sometimes... Sticking to our hopes and plans and Bible reading, it, it gets tripped up along the way. We acknowledge that sometimes we either get too good at the discipline of it and kind of miss you, or get lost in the detail of it. And other times we just, our discipline spins out and we kind of neglect or forget. Other times the questions are too hard and we don't know what to do about it. We want to set those things aside. We acknowledge their reality, but we're asking for a special help of your spirit this year to guide us to encounter you and engage with you weekly, regularly in your word. I ask for a special work of your spirit that we would just be conscious of the fact that we do not read alone. Your spirit is with us, helping us and guiding us in this journey. We pray this year that Jesus would be magnified to us through the Bible in our own reading bless each person. Father, now as we go into your world on your mission, we confess our need of you and our need for one another. It's our desire to see the Comox Valley filled with the message and ministry of Jesus and for us to be used by you in that journey. So guide us this week that others would know your hope, your peace, your love, your truth. We pray this in the strongest name, which is yours, Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you as you leave today. 35 points. If you find a nail, uh, bring it to me and I'll give you your points and we'll tally it over the next few weeks and 
There'll be something for the winner. Okay, God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon and a great week in front of you. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.